Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, today we're going to turn in the book of Revelation to chapter 2. We're looking at the seven churches of Revelation. We're in church number three today, the church at Pergamum. And we're going to look at a church compromised. A church compromised. Let me go to the text. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17 for us, and then we'll continue with the message. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Compromise. It's a word that has both negative and positive connotations in our day and time today, right? Depending on the context. So take, for instance, there is known from 1787 in the history of our country what is known as the Great Compromise. And it is the title for the compromise that was struck so that everyone uh, from the constitutional um, uh, uh, party, or, or excuse me, the development of the Constitution could be happy and, and representation would be granted equally to all. And out of the Great Compromise, we have what we now know as the two chambers of Congress, the Senate and the House of Representatives. Now, there are some positive examples of compromise as well. Thank you. The first service didn't get it. Compromise can serve a good purpose in many aspects of life, but not in all ways. And there's a particular way in which it never serves a good good purpose. But as we've done in our study, I want to talk about the city of Pergamum just a little bit because context is king in understanding the meaning of what we're studying. If you don't understand the context of the scriptures that are being written and who they're written to, you you can't understand the message of what's going on. And so we need to understand a little bit about the city of Pergamum. It's located about 50 miles north of Smyrna, the last church that we looked at. But instead of being a port city, it's about 16 to 20 miles inland from the coast. 
And like Ephesus and Smyrna and any other city of that era, even cities of our era, they want to be known for something. They, they need something that becomes their calling card. And so Pergamum became a distinctive city as early as the second century BC and was even called the finest flower of Hellenistic culture. It was known for its, um, its beauty and its majesty and its glory. Politically, it served as the Roman capital or the capital of the Roman province uh, in, in Asia Minor there. And culturally, it had a number of great boasts, but maybe its greatest boast was of its library, which enjoyed over 200,000 volumes of parchment scrolls. Now think about that for a moment. Parchment scrolls weren't as easily stored as books are today. Over 200,000 of them though. And, and the very word parchment itself derived from the city of Pergamum. Evidently, two librarians got in an argument, but that was a heated battle. I'm on a roll. I'm on a roll. Just hang on and enjoy it. Uh, they, the, the library in Pergamum tried to hire away one of the infamous librarians of Egypt. And Egypt said, no, 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 no. As a matter of fact, you'll not only hire them away, but we'll stop resourcing you with the papyrus that Egypt supplied the world with at that time. And they said, okay. And that's where parchment came from. They developed it. It is, tradition has it. Uh, it was developed in Pergamum. So culturally, they had a lot to boast about. Religiously, well, it may be its greatest fame or its claim to fame, it, it was notorious for the number of temples and altars to a plethora of gods in Pergamum. As a matter of fact, Pergamum was a city set in the shadow of religious plurality, of polytheism, the worship of many gods. And though it was in the valley, there was immediately on its eastern side a mountain that rose over a thousand feet in eleva elevation above it. And the mountain was littered on all sides with uh, the worship and the altars of many gods and emperors in the Roman world because emperor worship was such a big part. As a matter of fact, Pergamum was one of the first major cities to build a temple for emperor worship, meaning they worshiped the Caesars of Rome as God. And it became known as the temple warden of the imperial cult. So it was known for its worship of the Roman Caesars. There are three temples of note that I want to point out to us today that I find most interesting and that are really most uh, 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 unique about that. First of all is the temple to Athena. So the goddess Athena Nikephorus, who was known as the victory bearer, the goddess of victory bearer, and it was the most important religious site for the city, it is made known, because obviously they wanted to be victorious. But her namesake is still carried forward today, although in a lower fashion, on the Nike shoes by the Nike swoosh. That's where the word Nike comes from, the goddess Athena, who was the victory bearer. Dionysius was another god. It was the patron god of the arts and of theater. These are the best preserved ancient ruins of the city still today. Asclepion was the shrine of Asclepius, the Greek god of healing. And where you worship this god, there was a sanctuary, there was a spa, 
and, and, and much healing uh, was denoted to take place there because of the healing pools, uh, sacred springs, and the mud treatments that they offered there for the many different aspects of illness. And so popular was the symbol of Asclepion in Pergamum, which is that symbol of the serpent, that it became an emblem of the city itself. So medically speaking, Pergamum was a great center known for its medical treatments. It was even denoted on its coins. And it records that next to the Asclepion was a sanatorium where they uh, would, would lay sick people just hoping that one of the sacred snakes would touch and heal them. I'm going to give you a little insight. There's no such thing as a sacred snake. Feel free to exercise dominion at every opportunity over them. And of course, that symbol is still used today with medical associations of the snake that was begun in Pergamum. But there was one throne, even amidst these three, that was most awe-inducing and fear-inducing that really captures the polytheistic culture of the city of Pergamum, and it was thrown to the god Zeus. It was prominently set on the terrace near the top of the hill where stood an immense altar. And, and this altar, you have to understand that at the top of this hill, you can see there the, the seats that descended down from it. And at the bottom, there was this altar that was wrapped on three sides in massive colonnades and steps. And the whole structure looked like a throne. But distinctively of Zeus's altar, animal sacrifices were burned 24 hours a day, every day of the year, constantly with a changing team of priests who were constantly coming in. And it is said that the overpowering smell of burning animal flesh permeated the air in Pergamum. And all day long, a column of smoke could be seen from miles around in order to remind everyone of the supremacy of Zeus in the public eye. And so today, when you see the scriptures and you hear the title, Satan's Throne, Historians and theologians believe that the altar to Zeus would have been the imagery imagined what is known as Satan's throne, which we'll see a couple of times in today's sermon. Now, I summarize all of these religious practices in order just to emphasize Pergamum's great devotion to polytheism, to the worship of any, yea, every god. And it earned the city the infamous title of the home to Satan's throne because of the vast pluralism. And in the city of Pergamum, it was known that there was great hostility against the church, that Christians lived under a, a very severe and an intense persecution because of the plurality of, uh, of worship there and the exclusivity of the claim of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as is with this church, and as we looked at the pattern of each of these addresses to the church where we begin with an introduction, there's a name or a title for Jesus that's given. Today it's the one who has the two-edged sword. And then there is some praise given for that church. The praise given for the church at Pergamum is this, that even though the hostility and the persecution is intense and severe, 
some have held fast to the faith. And there's even one, Antipas, who's pointed out, who was a faithful witness to the very end. And as it says here, that was killed among you where Satan dwells. Tradition says that Antipas lost his life on Zeus's altar because of the severe hatred for Christianity in the city. Treated like another mere animal. But friends, what the message is telling us today against such a dark contrast of culture is that Jesus, in fact, is worthy. That's what the life of Antipas tells you and I today from all of these centuries ago. And Jesus is speaking to his church today, calling us to live as a faithful witness that even in a culture that is violently hostile and severe and intense in its persecution, Jesus is still worthy for us to live as faithful witnesses. And so what I want you to see today is this, that Jesus is the righteous judge. We don't talk about Jesus being the judge very often today, but we're very clearly set apart that Jesus is the righteous judge who calls his people to repent of sinful compromise and to live as a faithful witness. The church of Pergamum was most likely made up of almost all new converts. Why? Well, there was no Jewish synagogue in the city of Pergamum that is known And as was Paul and other missionary uh, strategies, if they went into a new city, they would find where the Jewish temple was and they would go into the temple and they would begin preaching the gospel to the Jews because of the common roots of religion that we had with them, Jesus himself being one. But there was no Jewish temple in Pergamum. And so it reminds us that most of the converts, if not all exclusively, all of the members of the church in Pergamum were new converts. They they didn't have parents who told them about the love of God. They didn't have grandparents who prayed for them and saved them from so much heartache. Rather, they were trying to navigate this on their own. The only one they could follow was Jesus. But he would prove sufficient. There was a lot of pressure to abandon Christ and the severity of the persecution they had to endure. And so holding true and faithful to one God was no small matter against the daily pressure to join everyone in worshiping what feels good, in worshiping what seems so right. I mean, it's just so big and prevalent as you could see ever before them on the mountainside. So it appeared so normal, so common. Yea, for so many, so beneficial. And yet Jesus calls them to something different. But as we see, every church except for twos, also Jesus says this, but I have this against you. And this is the great sin, not that some have simply dabbled in, but is defining now the church. And for the church of Pergamum, it was the sin of giving in to two dominant false teachings is what Revelation teaches us. The first false teaching was the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam was a figure in the Old Testament. We find a record of him in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And he appeared to be a very true prophet of God. And he refused to utter a curse against 
Israel. But later, chapter 31 of Numbers, he is blamed for Israel's idolatry and immorality. So what we see originally with him may look okay. It's a little confusing in the way it's told. But later it becomes very clear that the confusion here was not because God, rather it was because of Balaam and his deception and and deceiving through compromise that would later make him guilty for Israel's idolatry and immorality or leading them into that. It is said that he led Israel to eat meat offered to idols and to participation in the uh, sexual rituals of paganism with uh, other people who, to whom they were not married. You go, well, now, wait a minute. That's the Old Testament long ago. How is that still relevant for what we're talking about in the first century, let alone what we would be considering today in the 21st century? Well, we know it was relevant because this is the very topic that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when he's speaking of meat that's been offered to idols. This was a major division in the church of the New Testament. And they're still arguing over it. You see, the issue was simply this. Could Christians eat meat that they had purchased in the market that came from an animal that had originally been dedicated to be sacrificed on Zeus's altar? This is a major issue. And of course, not only Zeus's altar, but any altar to a foreign god. And, and when we think about the teaching of Balaam, it did one of two things. Balaam either taught that it was no big deal, don't worry about, forget about it, and do what you want to do, or he intentionally led the people knowing it was the wrong thing, encouraging them to participate. And so how did the church respond? Well, as most churches throughout history, never wanting to deny the opportunity for a good argument, The other side said, no, absolutely not. You cannot be a Christian if you ever buy meat purchased in the market that was originally sacrificed to an idol or originally dedicated to an idol. So we had two ends of the spectrum here. This is not really hard for us to conceive of. We we can turn almost any issue into this same kind of a topic today, right? We've got our own that we could deal with. But Paul says to the church in Corinth this, Well, it depends on one's knowledge and heart motivation. Now, I don't have time to go into all of that, but ultimately, the argument was, well, maybe some people knew it was dedicated to a false god, and maybe some people didn't know. They went to the store to buy food. And the reason meat became such an issue is because people didn't eat meat at every meal like we do today, typically. Meat was a a rarity to serve on the table. And so for them to get meat represented a very serious or a very uh, 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 rare thing for them to participate in. And Paul says this, listen, it depends on one's knowledge and heart motivation. That's what we would understand today as a conscience, a conscience. So Paul is appealing to their conscience to teach basically this. Listen, you should not deny your conscience in order to indulge the flesh or the desires of your life. But he also says this, but it's not just about your conscience. It's also about whether or not you know that that would create a stumbling block for a weaker brother or sister. And Paul says, Christians do not knowingly and willingly indulge in things 
to cause other people to stumble, which is the very thing that Balaam did and gave no credence for in his teaching, leading the whole nation of Israel, the whole people, to stumble in this way. As a matter of fact, the church at Pergamum would have been so familiar with Balaam for this one reason. His name became synonymous for false prophets who taught what they taught for financial gain. That's the point of the teaching of Balaam. He was the original television evangelist. Too much? You get what I'm saying. I'm not denying all of them. Please don't over apply what I just said. My point is, he is the one who literally and figuratively both perverted the role of prophet from God for personal gain. And those who followed in his pattern in the first century by those churches were known as Balaam's because it was his name that they uh, were following in the pattern of. Not only was it the teaching of Balaam, but as we saw a couple of churches ago, it was also the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we've already been introduced to them, but in summary, the Nicolaitans advocated for a love of people over doctrine. In other words, they weren't trying to worry about love for God and being faithful to his teaching. They just said, listen, if you just love people, that will be enough. But the problem was it led to heretical teaching then, even as it does today, because what turns out is it's no real love of God or it's no real love at all because it's a complete denial of God. In other words, it's giving preference to people over God. And it's not truly loving them according to the scriptures. And so these two teachings became so prevalent with one another and closely aligned that they were almost impossible to distinguish. Go do whatever you want to do. Do what feels good. Do what works. And that can be what guides you. The teaching of Balaam was a very strong temptation. Imagine coming out of that your whole life and becoming a convert to be, to be a Christian and the temptations that that would keep lingering. Because it promised this, it promised the best food and the ultimate pleasure. And quite frankly, who doesn't want those? Except, except in the way in which it came. And the Nicolaitans as well were advocating just to embrace it all because that's the best way to love people. You see, Balaam and the Nicolaitans were a prototype of what we understand as compromise. Compromise. Compromise with idolatry, compromise through immorality. And this was the great spiritual issue ravaging the church of Pergamum. This is what Jesus warns against, compromise with the culture. Friends, listen, compromise makes sin so common that it cannot be denied. Do you understand that? Compromise makes sin so common it cannot be denied. Making it impossible to be denied? No. Making it almost not probable that an individual who was so deeply immersed in it would ever deny themselves of it. You see, compromise in our relationship with God is always a wrong decision, a bad decision, and a destructive path for Christians. Compromise can serve you well in this world, 
at times. Give and take, if you will. We could think of a number of different ways in which that could serve us well. But in contrast to that, we're not talking about compromise in interpersonal relationships. We're talking about compromise in relationship with the righteous, true one. And it never serves a good reason. And so it tells us there's only one right response. Verse 16, therefore, repent. Repent. That's the only right response in light of compromise before God. Jesus tells the church at Pergamum to repent of their sinful compromise. And if you will not repent, look at what he says. I will come to you soon, so there's urgency, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. What is he saying there? The sword was an imagery recognized as the instrument of execution in Roman law. Jesus is saying there will be an imminent and precise judgment of sin if you do not repent. There is a warning that is inherent here by Jesus himself. It is clear, most importantly, it is urgent. We don't talk a lot about judgment from Jesus today, but the Bible doesn't back down from it. We don't talk about it today, not because the Bible has lessened its speaking of it, but because too often, like the church in Pergamum, we've compromised on what we're willing to discuss. You see, without a doubt, the church in Pergamum would have remembered this about Balaam, that when Balaam was warned of his compromise, he was warned by an angel who held a sword. And when Balaam lost his life, he lost his life at the hand of a sword. The one who speaks to the church of Pergamum, the church riddled with compromise today, is the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword. He is the judge. He is the righteous one who has come to judge sin. But there were some who stood as faithful witnesses. So it's not only a message of impending doom, but rather set against the darkness of impending doom and judgment of sin, there is the light of hope. A faithful witness. Antipas, who becomes the martyr. And we know nothing else about Antipas other than this itself. But Jesus raises and exalts him as one who models for them the way they should live. Because their community of the church had been compromised by idolatry and sexual immorality. Jesus stands over the church, friends, to judge their sin soon for the one who will not repent. Does this align with your understanding of King Jesus? But for those who will repent and do repent, Jesus has not left us in the dark doom of judgment. He offers a life-changing promise. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who who receives it. This is the powerful promise that Jesus offers to those who repent. 
in repentance you will become, because Jesus has conquered sin, a conqueror. Christians are conquerors and overcomers because the one in whom our life is sourced has conquered and overcome for us. This is what the angel is saying to the church at Pergamum. This is what the Spirit of God is saying to us. And in our conqueror, King Jesus offers to us two aspects of his promise. First of all is hidden manna. Now what was the manna? Well, it would have reminded the church of Pergamum and the Christians of the first century, even as it does to us today, that manna was a divine blessing from God that fell from the sky, if you will, to provide for the needs of his people. All of God's divine provision is represented in the divine manna that's hidden and promised to them. And so we see that there is something that meets all of the needs of our lives, both our wants, our needs, and our desires. But it comes only from God's hand. The world does not give it. God is the one who provides it. But alongside the hidden manna, he tells us there will be a white stone. And on that white stone will be a new name that is written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, in the first century, white stones were used in a number of ways. One of the first ways it was used in the judicial system as an instrument of acquittal. So if someone had been accused of a crime and they stood before the judge and were declared innocent, the judge would acquit them of their guilt and give them a white stone. This is kind of like the blue check mark on Twitter. So if somebody says something against you that's not true, no, I've been validated. They had white stones instead of the blue check marks that validated them. They would carry that against the false claims against them to show their innocence. And it represented spiritually as being declared righteous. Righteous before God. This is what the angel is saying to the church. Those who repent are declared righteous before King Jesus, who is the judge. But not only that, on that white stone is written a new name. A new name was critical in this era because they understood a name to represent not just what a person identified with, but what they were identified by. There was a character and a very nature that was emblematic of that new name. And a new name written on the stone said that you've been made new by the one who's declared you innocent. Is this at all sounding familiar? What does the white stone represent? But that instead of an adversary, we have an advocate. He's given us our stone. He's given us a new identity. We are not old anymore. The old is gone. The new has come because of Jesus Christ. We who were dead have been made alive. We who were guilty have been proclaimed innocent because we've been forgiven and redeemed. We've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And that stone was a guarantee because another way that they used stones in that day was for ticket to entry. If you were going to the next best concert, that's the way you were getting in. That's the way you were getting in. Let me tell you something. There is a feast that is being prepared 
at the table of the Father. And only those who have a white stone with a new name written on it will gain entry to it. This is the promise that the Spirit of God is speaking to the angel of the church at Pergamum and is speaking to you and I today. The culture will promise to satisfy your every desire, but the Spirit of God is saying, do not compromise. Do not compromise. Remain as a faithful witness. Jesus will prove true to his promise. The white stone that Jesus promised to the one who repents is the ticket to the eternal blessing given by God to be judged righteous before him because of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you today, do you have your white stone? Have you repented of your sin and received the forgiveness and the cleansing of God to be made righteous before him so that the advocate, Jesus Christ himself, stands in your place and intercedes to the Father on your behalf to say, bring them in. We've got a place at the table set for them. Life with God for all eternity that begins now. This is what the angel is promising to the church at Pergamum. This is what Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, is providing for us today. He is the righteous judge who is calling his people to repent, not give in to sinful compromise, and to live as a faithful witness. Friends, compromise never serves one well with God. Do you understand this? Compromise is when God's word says one thing, but we, we go, well, and we settle for something other than. Compromise is when God's word says one thing, but, but we try to cut it short in the demand and just get around to the reward. Compromise is when we substitute something other than God's promise in order to gain favor, maybe with other people, maybe with our own self. To gain status, pleasure, or riches. And you know, very seldom does compromise ever happen all at once. Most people don't wake up and say, you know what? Today is the day I'm going to sell out. I'm going to destroy myself today. Doesn't happen that way, does it? But compromise is always determined by a choice we make. Always determined by a choice we make. And so Jesus is calling people to repent. To repent and live as a faithful witness because of the destructive process of compromise. And I want to take our remaining few moments and look at this process of compromise. You see, compromise is a process that's motivated by personal benefit or personal gain. It's initiated through a pattern of thinking that culminates in choices made and, and it produces unhelpful and undesirable ends. But it doesn't tell you that from the beginning. The process of compromise really begins with four main motivations. Convenience would be motivation number one. It just seems easier to do so if you make the compromise. Advantage that if you make the compromise, you, you get something or you get positioned somewhere to help or to aid you or even some others in some way. 
If not advantage, then motivated by advancement. It helps you get further down the road faster if you just make this one compromise. But a compromise is kind of like a lie. You're always going to have to make another one to make up for the last one. Until you're on the road to compromise and it's the only path you can follow except to repent and turn away. The fourth main motivation of compromise is pleasure. You just want to indulge it. It feels too right to even be wrong. You see, that's the next generation developed from even the sexual revolution in America of the 60s and 70s. When the cliche, how could it be wrong if it feels so right, began to be a calling card for people to enter into all kinds of sexual immorality. And of course, today, we see it's not just about indulging in what we would consider Uh, some forms of sexual immorality, but every depth and darkness and depravity of sexual confusion in our day and time. You see, these are most motivating when we're impatient, when we're demanding of others, and and when we become self-centered, selfish. And we basically just say this, I want it, I want it. These become most motivating and, and they become their strongest in us when we're weary and we're tired, when our defenses are lowered and weak, when our discernment doesn't have all the, the threads of the filter that it needs and so things begin to slip through. We rationalize, not only do I want it, but I deserve it. I deserve it. They become strongest when we're threatened or afraid. And we want comfort, we want security about what the impending doom may be. And so we justify it by, well, I need it. This is important. Compromise is most motivated when maybe we haven't achieved a goal or we haven't received a reward that we felt like we had earned. And so seeking to salve self, we say, you know what, I have earned this. So we began to follow this process of thinking of I want it, I deserve it, I need it, or I've earned it. And any of these motivations may present themselves through money, through power, through position, and and all seem to be accompanied by security and satisfaction because of the promise they come with, when ultimately, in fact, they deny the very things that they promised to begin with. Compromise never tells you where it leads you in the beginning, but it never leads anywhere other than destruction in the end. The promise of compromise advances by questions posed at each step along the path. Questions like this, what's so wrong about this? Where there may be some initial surface level moral conflict or value that we feel inside. And we go, I don't, uh," you know, but it's based on something that we don't want to go deeper in. And so we begin to ask, well, what's so wrong about this? The interesting thing about the questions that advance compromise is they're not questions at all. We're giving the answer we've already concluded. So when we begin to ask, what's so wrong about this? We've already answered nothing, nothing. We've dismissed the moral conflict within us. We ask the question, what harm could there be? And, and, and here we're trying to address any ethical potential. And we've said this, it's not going to hurt anybody else. So if it's just me, why should anybody else worry about it? I don't see how I could be hurt by it. We take that next step along the path of compromise. 
we ask ourselves thirdly, how bad could this really be? Here, we, we've gotten past the moral and the ethical dilemma and potential confusion there, and now we're beginning to personalize it. It might be a spiritual need or issue. It might be a physical desire or even an emotional hurt or wound. So we begin to indulge and we advance towards that compromise by asking, how bad could this really be? Because we tell no one really understands my situation. You don't know what I'm going through. And fourthly, it advances by, does God's word really say anything about this or even, even matter for this? Here's the biblical issue whereby we seemingly remove the necessity of God's command to substitute our own desire or want. You see, ultimately the process of compromise thrusts us always back into the Garden of Eden where the serpent posed a question to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? And we are faced with the adversary's question that leads to our choice to compromise and sin. You see, the process of compromise damages and destroys because of what it produces. It short circuits a healthy process to miss the value of growth and maturity. Hebrews 5, 8 tells us that Jesus, the righteous judge, the king of all kings, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. It was a process, friends. And compromise in its own process truncates the process of growth and maturity. James 1, 2 through 4 tells us, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. And it goes on to lead us through a process of how God, even in the midst of hardship, trial, and, and yea, even temptation, is forming and changing and transforming us from within. But don't have to worry about that with compromise. You just shortcut all of that and move on. You see, compromise leads to a failure to learn the value of obedience. A failure to walk through the process of maturity because it short-circuited all of that. But with compromise, the process is not known. It's not like you're aware of this because you've been deceived by the promise of compromise. It creates a false sense of identity. You'll be loved. You'll, man, people will love you. They'll laugh at you. They'll make you feel good about yourself. They'll make you feel good about your situation. No, listen, friends, when people invite you into compromise, they want you to make them feel better about their situation. You're nothing but a tool in their shame and guilt. But this false sense of identity, worth, and value begins to pro produce a false sense of security. I'm okay. I, I can handle this. I can manage it. And it makes you think that you are what in fact you are not and makes you think you have what in fact you do not have. Finally, it leads to destruction because it satisfies a genuine need or desire of life with a false hope that deceives. Instead of making you, it's destroyed you. But you don't even know the destruction is not the real you. Compromise is seldom exposed until it's too late. 
You see, it teaches us, it trains us, and it reinforces that problems and temptations can be coddled with false hopes that are justified by wrong beliefs that tolerate to accept and justify sinful actions that ultimately condemn. Compromised beliefs always produce compromise in actions. Compromised beliefs always produce compromise in actions. Where you entertain wrong thinking, that's not what God's word says, that is not aligned with God's word or in accordance with God's word or doesn't follow the pattern of the teaching of God's word, you always end up choosing to indulge in sinful behavior because you believe it has more promise than what God's word has promised. And that sinful behavior fuels more compromised thinking, which leads to more compromised behavior, which leads to greater, deeper, and darker deception. But a more quick readiness to indulge each and every time. But friends, compromise doesn't have to be the last word. You say, how do I know if I'm toying with compromise? Have you been asking yourself any of the questions that I've run through? Are you using any of the statements to justify yourself in regards to a relationship, a situation, a temptation? Do any of those things that are presenting themselves to you know, knowingly, not align with God's Word, and yet you're entertaining them with one of these motivations, one of these questions that advances the process? Friends, you're on the cliff of compromise whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your home, whether it's in your job, whatever it is, it's always a cliff. But the Spirit of God shines the light of His truth on that dark process and brings conviction unto repentance. Listen to the sword of God's Word and how His Word works. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Are you compromising in any area of your life? The Spirit of God through the Word of God today is speaking to you, imploring you to hear and to heed, to turn and repent and to trust. To trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous judge. You see, compromise will also bring you face to face with Jesus. But instead of a white stone, he'll be holding a sword of judgment. You don't have to face Jesus that way. Compromise will never get you a white stone. Compromise will never get you a new name or a new identity. It'll never make you righteous before God. Compromise will never get you into the banquet of heaven. Never. It will keep you out though. Jesus has a white stone for you. That's what the gospel tells us. Jesus comes to you today and he offers to you what all the promises of this world could never provide. 
that you don't have to live in your righteousness and your perfection. You can receive his righteousness. That if you repent of your sins and put your trust in him, he will take you from walking dead in your sin and make you alive unto God. He will sit at the right hand of the Father and he is interceding for you every moment of every day. He'll give you a new name. The old will be gone. Behold, the new has come, it says. And on that day, he will stand next to you before God. White stone in hand. New name written. This is my beloved child. Come. Enjoy the banquet feast of heaven. Do you know Jesus? Maybe today's the day you need to receive your white stone. 